Hi everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with Wilford Riley. Wilford is an associate professor at University of uh, Kentucky State, and he's also an author of Taboo and Hate Crime Hoax and $50 million Question. Hi Wilford, thanks for coming on. Yeah, sure thing. Glad to be on. Yeah. Okay, so I became aware of you on Twitter, and someone tagged me in an interview you did with uh, Glenn Lowry, and it was talking about your... Well, it was partially talking about your book, Hate Crime Hoax. And I'd actually just been talking to someone who was, in, who was accused of a hate crime. So I you know, I reached out to you and you graciously agreed to come on. So like I said, I, like we talked about before, we can go anywhere you want. But if you want to just start talking about that a little bit, like the hate crime thing, and then we can just go from there. Yeah, sure. So I wrote a book called Hate Crime Hoax. And this ended up coming out with Regnery, which is one of the larger right of center publishers. But it really wasn't all that politically motivated. It was... Mm-hmm motivated by my realization that a lot of these very high-profile hate crime incidents, uh, Jussie Smollett, Covington Catholic, if you want to elevate that to the level of a hate crime as opposed to a hate incident, but uh, Erica Thomas, I mean, a literal congresswoman who claimed that she was assaulted in an upper-end grocery store, Um, the dreadlock-cutting case in D.C., which just sounded gross, racist when it first came out, Yasmin Saweed with the torn hijab on the New York 6 train. Um, All of the, I mean, Duke Lacrosse, Goucher College, Drake University, uh, Wisconsin Parkside with the nooses, Kean College with the death threats. I really could go on with this, but I mean, of the most high profile, not street fights, but the most high profile hate crime incidents in the country over, say, 10 years, out of maybe 30 in terms of Google search results, you had 12 or 15 fakes, and I've just listed them. And I was curious about why that is. I'd sort of noticed this phenomenon just reading through the papers. And I decided to put together a long-form list of how many of these hoaxes there were, which is now over a 1,000 if you're counting individual incidents. And also to look as a social scientist at why people were doing this. And that became the book Hate Crime Hoax. And I think that attracted a lot of attention, specifically on the right, where there's a lot of, I mean, where the idea is, and I think this is mostly accurate, racism has declined about 90%, but people are still marching, protesting at the same levels is a lot of this stuff just not real. Um, But uh, pretty much across the spectrum, I've been invited to come to conferences and so on and talk about this topic, and uh, yeah, pretty well-known book about hate crime fakes. Yeah, okay, the hate crime fake thing. Now, you mentioned the hijab one. Like, (coughs) first of all, like, I, let's not, anything I say or whatever, I'm not trying to lessen the, you know, like, don't fake a hate crime because you're going to actually lessen when something like that really happens. But I think the press also missed a huge thing there. Uh, like after it came out that it was a hoax, when she showed up in court, her head was shaved. Oh, yeah. And so, like, this is my issue with, like, all these things and the way the press deals with them. And I don't, I hate the term fake news. It's more like narrative-driven news. If they'd taken that moment to say, okay, yes, she faked it. She shouldn't have faked it. But here's the reason why. If she'd come home with it lost, she was facing punishment. Her father shaved her head because she didn't have it, right? No one stopped to talk about what the hijab means and what that actually, like, like okay, I'm not de- defending her for doing it, but, like, she had some justification there because she was afraid of her father. And no one even discussed that, right? They just... Yeah. 
No, that, I think that's right. It's it's kind of a matter of which narrative you want to focus on. Because, I mean, obviously, we know at some level that life isn't perfect. Like, there is violence in the world. There is racism in the world. The question is, which patterns matter to you from your position on the political left or the right or in your own ethnic group? Everyone has these biases. Um, I mean, the first philosophers really to achieve notice, Socrates and Plato and so on, notice this. Whose bias do you seek? But I mean, in the mainstream media, yeah, you're absolutely right that there's a plague of domestic abuse and woman beating in a lot of immigrant communities. It's not racist to say that. And that's by no means just Muslim communities. So if you go back to Tawana Brawley in the 80s, I think she was a West Indian. This was a girl who was like 16, not an especially young kid. She spent the night with her boyfriend. I don't know if they were quote unquote intimate or not. But then she made up this whole thing where she claimed a group of white guys had kidnapped her. Basically, she didn't want her dad to beat her ass. That was the whole thing. Like, <clears throat> she was aware that if she came home and she said, well, I've been over at a young man's apartment, even if there was an innocent reason for the start of that, they'd been studying together or something, he was going to physically attack her. So what she did instead was literally stuff herself into a garbage bag, um, smear herself with dog feces, as it turned out, write racial slurs on herself and say that she'd been attacked by a group of white racists. And the motivator for all that was not wanting to catch a beating when she got home. And it's the exact same thing with Yasmin Saeed. Uh, she'd been out drinking with a group of Christian friends. Yep. And when she came home, I think there were some light bruises or something. You might be right that she'd lost the hijab. And the explanation was, well, I was attacked on the train so that the family would be sympathetic instead of abusive. Yeah, and that, that subtext has never been, I think you may be the first person other than one article to bring that up. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I mean, no, but I, like that's, I think, like, okay, the, the racism thing, all right? I grew up in Montreal, you know, I was born in India, I'm brown. Um, I was about 15 years old, I was taking the bus, and on the seat back in front of me was written white power, black caca, and the only word they spelled correctly was caca. And as soon as I saw that, I started laughing. And I'm like, I can't take this shit seriously anymore. I just can't. If that's your thinking, well, then I'm better than you. And, like, it's, it hasn't bothered me since then at all. You know, like, you know, like I get more bothered by the, the I don't even want to call it soft bigotry. But it's hard yeah. bigotry, but the hard bigotry of low expectations. Oh, well, that's just them. They don't know better. It's like, screw you. You know, like, just, just. Like, I, I just can't take that. Like, that bugs me more than someone calling me a packy or a towelhead or something. Yeah, I pretty much feel the same way. I mean, it. so, again, I think that this gets into the idea every society has narratives. Yeah. So, I mean, in traditional white Western society, except for the Greeks and the Romans, there was an extreme focus on homosexuality of all the niche things as being bad. Yeah. Um, I mean, faggot, bluntly, was one of the worst things people would call each other there was this women who seemed to be about 40 percent bisexual in the era of real science were supposed to absolutely deny this as well it was just this weird thing that we focused on in reality of course there's nothing wrong with being gay who cares more women for the rest of us but the point is that this became the narrative you absolutely couldn't be quote unquote a queer um and this dominated discourse for decades and now it looks like we've moved toward racism as like the taboo du jour. Yeah. So like the thing you can't be is a racist. And you're absolutely right. Like in practical day-to-day -day life, you sometimes experience racism if you're an upper a middle class black or East Asian or South Asian guy. You also sometimes experience, at least in the first case, affirmative action benefits. And 90% of the time you don't experience either. 
So my reaction has always been like, yeah, some people are assholes and some percentage of those people are motivated by racism. But who cares? Like, I'm a successful, intelligent, reasonably good looking guy. Like, it doesn't bother me at all unless someone's doing it to me. But we've begun to focus on that so that people are trying to dig out racists around society like they used to try to dig out, quote unquote, perverts. It's the thing that we don't allow now. And uh, to some extent, that's probably because it's become rarer. I mean, for uh, go, go on. No, no, yeah, it's it's become rare, but that's just it. Like the hunt for racists, but it's it's not only the hunt for racists. It's like they wanted the Jussie Smollett story to be true. Oh yeah, they want these things to be true. And it's like, why are you rooting for the bad thing if there's proof that it's not happening? Shouldn't that make you happy at least? <laughs> well, I think that that gets into. Um, so first of all, the average person obviously doesn't want racism from whites or POC or doesn't want ethnic conflict. But I think, and I don't want to be conspiratorial here, but I think to some extent this gets into group interests. So in the USA, we have this entire infrastructure that was designed to compensate specifically blacks in the wake of the 1960s that now other groups can benefit from as well. From what I've seen, this is true in Canada as well, with positive discrimination and so on. But I mean, so we have massive affirmative action programs. Like when I applied to law school, um, I was told that I should focus on the Ivy League because as a black guy, I would definitely get in. Uh, instead, I went to the University of Illinois where I actually had like the requisite test scores and I did pretty well. But I mean, like we have massive affirmative action programs. We have very sizable minority set-asides, which affect some remarkable number of business purchases, like one in nine. Because Asians, African-Americans, in some cases, Jews fall under that minority criteria. And there are a lot of good businessmen in those groups. Um, we have these massive uh, civil rights activist groups like Southern Poverty Law Center, which has a well-invested endowment of about $500 million. And the justification for the existence of all of this, really, coming from that kind of center-right perspective, is, well, the old wars never ended. There's still a massive amount of racism. And if there's not a massive amount of racism, we then have to ask the question, why is this happening? Um, I mean, why would we keep writing $1,000 checks to the NAACP if most of the fights are over? So incidents like Jussie Smollett tend to get trotted out, not because they're so common, but because they're so exceptional. They're an example of what we used to have and what we still need to guard against with a skeleton crew, sort of. And I think that's why people are cheering for that to be real. And just also realistically, if you look at that, there was no chance that was real. Yeah, like, when, I, when I first you heard of that, like, fight in your life. That's not how it happens. Yeah. Like, the nooses and the bleach yeah. bottles. And, come on. No, but but like also like <laughs> you had time to like hold on to your sandwich. Like how'd you manage that? Yeah, he said he fought <laughs> off two big guys with his offhand holding a chicken salad sandwich. Like just bro, come on. No, you didn't. Yeah. Like it, the whole thing was just so ridiculous. Like he walked into the building with the noose around his neck, and he we contacted all these people, but he was like, "I won't call the police. I won't be a martyr." Yeah. I mean, when I read that case, one of the first things I legitimately said on Facebook and Twitter about that was, "This didn't happen." Like, I'm not here to plug my book, but just be aware that this is what these fakes look like. This did not occur. Yeah. Okay, and all this stuff, and it's, it's I don't want to focus too much on this, but it's like the, the race stuff, the whatever, whatever phobe, whatever, you know, you're, they're looking for anything. Like, I left North America in 2002 and I went to work overseas. I came back in 2014. Okay. 
Now, when I left, it was pretty much, you know, I may disagree with you, but I'll respect your right to say it. When I come back, it's like, cancel them. I see that professor at uh, Mizzou, the journalism professor at Mizzou, calling for muscle to take away a journalism student who's reporting on a protest. You know, the Christakis at Yale, uh, Sarah Lawrence, Middlebury, Evergreen, uh, you know, cancel, like, ban baby it's cold outside. I'm like, what happened? (laughs) And then I started reading because, okay, I, I got a bachelor's in political science. I, this is back in the late 80s, early 90s. I did my uh, college and university. Okay. And so I, I read some postmodernism. Like, it was in the, you know, it wasn't, but it wasn't like this stuff. But reading the critical race theory, like, when I started reading that, I was like, oh, my God. Like, where are they coming from? And then I went back and read, like, some of the original papers. And they have some, like, Derek Bell's paper has some really good points. Mm-hmm. you know but it's they take these things that are complicated and they're difficult and they bring it down to one single variable all the time like okay like they were saying for you to go into ivy league schools instead of pushing that and saying okay and then you know, the whole thing at harvard like scoring down asians and scoring up you know black yeah. students whatever instead of doing something like that a, why don't you try to, like, if you think there's a problem with the feeder system, address that. Because by the time you get to university, that's way too late. Because mm-hmm. then you have to be playing this catch-up. But, I mean, from everything I've been reading about this, like, when you let in people who aren't qualified into the into a program, yep. they'll either drop out completely or they'll switch to something like gender studies or, you know, whatever, whiteness studies or something absolutely useless. But, like, instead of doing something like that, if, you, if they said, okay, you know what? We think you're good enough for Harvard. We think that Harvard wants you. You've shown like you've shown like improvement like all through high school, everything like you know you're getting better, but you need to prepare. So we'll you know do a prep year at a community college, and then if you get a certain grade point average, you've got a spot waiting for you the following year. You know, like if you want these people to succeed, why not make a program to get them to succeed instead of just throwing them to the wolves in Harvard? And then if they don't do well, the actual real racists will say, see. We told you they can't do it, right? Yeah, and I mean, like, upper, upper class white and Asian kids are pretty predatory, too, although fun <laughs> to hang out with. Like, if you show up in a Harvard classroom and you have a 1090 SAT, man, it's going to be ugly. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, the first couple times you get called on are not going to be all that pleasant for you, especially thinking about a law school. So, I mean, just, it, it's all, first of all, I mean, I agree with most of that there. I think that in terms of, there, there's a lot here. This actually gets into my schema about racism when I speak on college campuses. I think basically four things about racism. Um, obviously, humans have a tendency toward in-group bias first. And obviously, in the USA, we have a bloody racial history, which obviously whites doing the worst things, but all groups literally fighting each other until fairly recently. I mean, the most the final Indian raid in the country is like 1910. So one, obviously, racism exists and existed here uh, in significant measure. And even today, I believe it's one in seven uh, people of color, one in 10 Caucasians test as a bigot. So, okay, racism exists. But point two is that we've spent a massive amount of time and treasure since the mid-1950s trying to change this fact, and specifically the USA. I don't, I don't know about Canada. But, I mean, the Civil Rights Act 
uh, dates back to 1964. Full desegregation dates back to 1954. Affirmative action itself is 53 years old. I mean, that, that goes back to the Philadelphia plan under Nixon in 67. Um, so the advantage that you have as a black kid of about 300 points when you apply to an Ivy school, that's been in place since 1971. So in this context, what I find very often is that most of the effects that are generally attributed to race vanish if you adjust for almost anything but race. Uh, so, for example, we often hear that African black people make less money than whites. And that's true to some extent. The average white guy uh, makes the average black guy makes 86 cents on the dollar relative to the average white guy. But this almost completely disappears if you adjust for three things. One is age. And this is actually important because populations differ wildly in terms of average age. So the average white guy is 58. That's a modal average, admittedly, just the most common age, but 58. The average black guy is 27. <coughs> Excuse me. I have a cold, by the way, not anymore, you know, damaging disease. But anywho, um, so it's obviously ridiculous to say when you're looking at anything from crime rate to income that a 27-year-old and a 58-year-old on average are going to perform equally. Uh, another variable is region. Uh, almost everyone in the South makes less money on average to the point that it's sort of a national punchline. But 50% of blacks and well under a third of whites live in the South. And the third difference is just tested SAT or IQ score. That's it. Um, the conservative writer Dinesh D'Souza and a liberal economist, I think June Gottfried, found this out back in 1995. It's been true since. It's one of those facts that just never discussed. So that was kind of a segue there. But when you get into of massive affirmative action programs, the issue is often that there's not much contemporary racism for them to rehab. What you're doing is taking middle-class kids in the group that performs 100 points lower and advantaging them over middle-class kids in the group that performs 100 points higher. And your point there is accurate. I mean, if you think that the schools in the black case are 10% worse, or just that black kids study less, which is the main cause of lower test scores, by the way, Fordham and Agbu, black kids study less than Asian kids, white kids study less than Asian kids. I mean, Nigerians are the highest scorers in the country because they study more. A lot of stuff's pretty simple. Um, but if you if you want an affirmative action program, yeah, absolutely. What you do is you fix the high, the high schools, the feeder schools. Uh, you give them more money or preferably higher IQ teachers. Um, or you require kids to study more during, call it a boot camp year like the military academies do. The military academies have a really good model here because most people that want to go there are white athletes from the South. And I don't mean to make you know group generalizations. That's not the highest test scoring population in the country either. But they put almost everybody in these prep schools, uh, naps and so on. And at the end of that, after getting your ass kicked by a sergeant for a year and learning how to study, then you go to West Point. That would work. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Just taking people and putting them in an environment that's 100 points higher scoring or 200 points, we want to be honest. Yeah, that's not going to do anything positive. Final point, you wonder if that's the intention. Like if you're a professor of racialized whiteness studies or something, do you want to keep that program going? Like, do you want to keep admitting unqualified, you know, minority students and radical feminists and so on so that you can keep that certain number of people in your field? If you start admitting Nigerians who want to be astronauts, you're not going to have much of a women's studies program in five years. <laughs> no, true enough. I mean, like, okay, like I jokingly repurposed uh, uh, Hitchens' quote, and I said, you know, they're not, they're not friends of victims; they're friends of victimhood. You know, like they need victimhood to 
you know, it's, it's a, they want that to be a renewable resource. Well, I think that there's also, I mean, like on the left, there really is a dispute between capitalism or mercantilism, if you prefer, and communism that goes back for a hundred plus years, depending on how you define communism. So I think that many leftists view minorities as a potential lumpen proletariat, basically, uh, wonky but accurate. I think that I don't find that the average person who went to Vassar is more cool with working class black kids than the average conservative athlete or soldier at all. I think that what they feel they can get from working class black kids is allies to oppose like this filthy system. And you see that a lot. The idea that what you have on the left is a coalition of the fringes. Like here we have the feminists and the Muslims. And as soon as I hear that first line, I'm like, what? You know, the transgender people and the rest of the feminists. What? The undocumented immigrants and the union workers. Like, that makes no sense. Elizabeth Warren telling you her pronouns. (laughs) Yeah, and everyone, like, I mean, until my current relationship, I I was in the dating scene or whatever. But I mean, like, everyone I've ever met who listed their pronouns on, like, their Tinder was an upper-class white chick. It's never a risk. It's never, like... Me saying, you know, my pronouns are actually her and hers. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to cut my beard, though. It's always someone just doing the... Well, and I, I do think, again, don't want to generalize across groups, but I find this to be an upper-middle-class white liberal thing. Like, the risk-free virtue signaling. Like, walking around with safety pins to show that you're opposing Donald Trump or posting your pronouns and preferred mode of address on Twitter, but it's him... I mean, like, there's not really much risk that goes along with that. And I find that that often combines with sort of thinking of people of color as kind of your native allies. Yeah, and okay, and that's one thing. Like, if you actually looked, I think it was up until uh, Bush's second term, George, like Bush Jr.'s second term. All right. If you looked at the stats up until then, the Muslim population was Republican voting. Oh, yeah. And... If you look at, and okay, if you look at values in different minority communities, socially they're far more conservative than they are liberal, right? I mean, Muslim families aren't well known for throwing raves, you know, like, yeah. you know, like, but like, even with like Latino and like black families, like, they are a little bit socially more conservative. And, but, this thing that okay you have to vote democrat if you're this and like like i was speaking to this was just a few weeks back i was out at the local pub and i was speaking to someone and it was uh, she was a friend of a friend and you know i'm not a big fan of donald trump i don't hide it but it's not because of oh he's a racist or any of that stuff right so we're talking and i was like yeah i don't want to vote i said i wouldn't vote for trump and she's like oh i know that i'm like and she's like, well, you know, I don't want to, you know, uh, was a profile, but it's like, well, you just did. Like, you know, you go on about how you're not racist, this and that, and you're just assuming because of the color of my skin, like, because like we were disagreeing about just about everything, and I think the only thing we agreed on that we wouldn't vote for Trump, and she's like, well, I know that anyways. It just, yeah, but then if you want to talk about racism, that's a bit of racism there. Like, it's like you know, like, it, it didn't, like I said, it didn't bug me or anything, but the, but there it is. It's it's that hypocrisy where you, oh yes, I want to protect you. It's uh, I mean. It, benevolent bigotry right i it's i see it like in the middle east um and uh, again it's like if you see it from like left-leaning people it's like okay we have to go there and fix it because these poor people 
but not only do we have to go there and fix it, we cause their problem. It's American foreign policy. It's the you know industrial war, you know the the military industrial complex. Whereas someone who's you know right wing or whatever is like, yeah, we got to go fix it for them because they screwed it up. At least they're giving you agency to say they screwed it up. Whereas like the left wing people, like, oh no, we caused your problems. Um, I don't know if you read Douglas Murray's book, the the uh, Strange Death of Europe. No. Uh, he nice. writes. He wrote this in it, and I'd heard him talk about it before. It gets to this point. It was uh, there was a reporter interviewing Yasser Arafat, and this is you know, obviously when he was still alive. Uh, and just as the reporter was about to leave, someone said, "Oh, the American delegation's here to talk to you." So the reporter got all curious. Oh, why, why are they here? Apparently, Arafat started laughing because the dele- U.S. delegation was going around the Middle East to apologize for the Crusades. And what yeah. the fuck did the U.S. have to do with the Crusades? Like, why were they apologizing? <laughs> Yeah. No, I, I I agree that there's a lot of so I mean there's a lot of stuff there. Yeah, there's a lot of benevolent prejudice on the political left. Um, the the thing that's weirdest to me, the most important thing you said just gets into uh, political attitudes in different groups. So yeah, if you've ever spent time in kind of the minority business community, which obviously you have, whether this is with Asians, blacks, whatever, if there's racism at all, it's the idea that whites are sort of weird perverts. Like, oh, that's something they do. You know, oh, yeah, taking that psychedelic drug and locking yourself in a room, that's, I don't know, that's those guys. Like, I mean, so everyone who has any reasonably successful black or Asian friends has heard this a bunch of times. Like, no, that's that weird, nah. You know, uh, they tend to be crazy. I'm not saying I believe these things, but I am saying that it is funny that the liberal party has come to contain you know, 85% of the black vote or 70% of the East Asian vote. And I, I mean, I think that's purely a historical artifact. Uh, there are entire movements now, like Bletzit, that are a bit campy. I mean, obviously a bit put on AstroTurf, but that also are pretty valid. I mean, if you see one of their rallies, there are a ton of people there that are mostly black. I mean, that are specifically focused on, hey, you don't have to do this. There's the Republican Party, of course. You know, over here in the little side booth, we've got the Libertarians and the Greens. Like, you don't necessarily have to make this decision. And I think, I mean, the, the stereotype in political science is probably pretty accurate that that goes back to Johnson and the Civil Rights Act. I mean, in 1964, um, LBJ signed the Civil Rights Bill. A lot of people didn't expect him to. And he was asked why he did it. And one of the first things he said was, we'll have them niggers voting Democratic for the next hundred years. But, you know, the Republicans would have done this if we'd let a moderate Republican get into office. I wasn't letting those conservative bastards take the credit. So, I mean, that that is a big reason for that minority vote. I mean, uh, Bush didn't really help things by fighting unnecessary wars with, you know, two Arab countries and Muslims. Afghans are quite exactly Arab. But I mean, like, but that whole thing, I mean, the reason that you see the majority of the Muslim or the black vote go to the Democrats is very specifically the idea that the Republicans are racist or they're a little crooked. It's never, I disagree with them on policy. And one of the things I'm starting to do, I'm thinking about launching a podcast because, you know, I've got a lot of time on my hands right now. But I mean, like, one of the things I'd be interested in doing is actually running policy points past black and South Asian and East Asian and Hispanic as well, friends of mine. Like, what do you think about Drag Queen Story Hour, bro? And I think it would just be... You know, I don't need to do access for like, what do you mean? The what? Story Hour? Okay, I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you, like, uh, the contacts of my uh, 80-year-old aunts around the U.S. You know, you, right. can, you can speak to some old Pakistani women, what they think about that. 
I'd love to do that. I would love to talk to like your aunt live. Like, ma'am, I mean, so I'm talking to you as a voter about a program called uh, Drag Queen and Sex Worker Story Hour. And what we do is we take people who are feminist drag performers and or prostitutes and we have them read to young girls. And I can just imagine by the time you got to that point, it would be a wrap. Like, oh my God. I mean, maybe I shouldn't because she's in her 80s. She might have a heart attack if you asked her that. No, but I mean, it's like the idea of, oh, yeah, you it's, know. It's, it's ludicrous, man. I think that the response would overwhelmingly be no. No, There's no way we should do that. Yeah. Okay, just one thing you touch on, because I, I bring this up, I brought this up with a couple of people, like, for minorities and the racism thing, right? Like, okay. So I was born in India, my family moved to Canada when I was six, and we'd go back, you know, every few years to visit. The first time I went back, I was 10 years old, and my grandfather said something to me then, which he'd said something, which he'd said to me before we'd moved to Canada, when I was misbehaving, he's like, if you don't stop misbehaving, I'm going to marry you off to the black girl down the road. Okay. And that was his punishment. I mean, that's racist as all hell. Like, the punishment was going to be that he's going to marry off to the black girl. I bring that up because that story in the New York Times earlier this year, or was it late last, later last year? It was the four girls and the, the four black girls in Brooklyn that got beat up by the two Indian boys, and one yeah. of the Indian boys pissed on them. And the, yeah. the op-ed in the New York Times was, "This is due to whiteness." And I was like, Pardon me? Like, I, like, I, because I, I bring that because I mean. I, okay, I've seen it. I've seen racism from... Okay, and it, it's like the Archie Bunker type of racism, right? They, they don't... It's just kind of like they don't know what... The, they're not really racist, but it's just in their language, and that's how they think. Like, you know, if you get what I'm trying to say, like, you know, like... Uh, but but to, to reduce that down to its whiteness, A, you're not doing anything to help either of those two groups, right? There is an actual problem there. Try to find out what that problem is. And now you're getting, you know, black kids, Indian kids, or South Asian kids, I don't know where they, exactly where they're from, and white kids, like, at odds with each other. I mean, like, I, I don't see any purpose in that except for causing strife. Well, I think, I think it's just, this is what happens when you become attached to a narrative. Like, I mean, if you look at a fight between members of minority groups, like slurs are used by black women, Indian guy slugs a black woman, pees on her, it's an ugly fight, high school fight. I mean, the obvious response is these kids are acting like assholes and don't give the kid a week in jail or something. But if you believe that everything dates back to the white man, like the white man has taught minorities how to hate, you're again engaging in that form of benevolent discrimination. You're also showing a shocking lack of understanding of history. And so, again, in addition to actually running policy points past, um, you know, everyone's buddies or grandmothers, I mean, I think one interesting point would just be to actually talk to leftists about some of history. I mean, like the idea that people often say that, for example, uh, East Asians were taught bigotry against, say, Muslims or blacks by whites. And it'd actually be interesting to run that through historical context. Like, you know, what about the sultans of Mysore in this period, if you've read any books about the area? In a sentence, just, yeah, racism is a pretty universal characteristic. Yeah, okay, when that's... I wrote my, Sorry. Yeah, like, when I wrote my college dissertation, the most racist group was old Asian men, by far. Well, yeah, no, but, okay, well, you mentioned this earlier, and, uh, yeah, it's human nature. We discriminate, you know. First, we discriminate by this is my mother. This is my you know like when you're a little kid, you, you recognize your parents and the people that are going to protect you. That's your family. 
but then as your group gets bigger, you discriminate by different things. I mean, it's 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 part of our human nature to be human is to be prejudicial in one way or another, right? It doesn't like I like redheads, he likes blondes. It's you know I'm discriminating, but it's not like being evil. So to say, oh, oh, you learn prejudice from white people. I mean, it's to take away part of human uh, part of the humanity of and I hate the goddamn term people of color, but like you know whatever. <laughs> Um, and apparently that's that's wrong too now. I don't know if you because I've been keeping up on the critical race theory stuff. People of color now apparently is wrong because it was come apparently it was made up by white people to have a blanket term for all minorities so that they couldn't focus on the individual problems of different peoples of color or whatever. So that that mm. just just so you know now that that's apparently Whoa. a long term. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't even have a comment on that. I mean, this is just nonsense. I know, I just... I, I do think it's funny that the left spent 60 years trying to redefine the horrible term colored people, and what they came up with was people of color. I mean, <laughs> not the most inventive bunch, but I mean, like, if you actually look at some of this stuff, I mean, my college dissertation, which became the $50 million question, actually looked at, like, did you ever read Andrew Hacker's Two Nations? Huge no. book in like 1995. Look into that. Yeah, The Two Nations, Separate and Unequal, by a far-left white social scientist. But a good social scientist for all that. But what Andrew Hacker did was, among other experiments, ask a bunch of black or white people how much they'd have to be paid to be black. Now, there are some problems with the experiment. Like, for example, he used Irish and Italian guys in Queens. And if you're familiar <laughs> with different groups of people, that's not a fair you know, go down to South Boston, like, yo, what do you think about the guys one block over? But um, anyway, so he asked a bunch of white guys how much they'd have to be paid to be black, and the average answer was $50 million. Um, and this is really, along with Cheryl Harris, the piece that started white privilege, uh, white privilege theory, and, and Macintosh as well. But the idea was the reason these white kids said $50 million wasn't that they were Italian thugs at the local university, it was that they were racist and they understood the value of white status in this racist society. So part of my dissertation, the paper that began it, that was really, I think, my first publication, I just asked my group of friends, which I've been describing throughout this, I mean, a large group, many middle-class black, Asian individuals, Hispanic individuals, I asked about 100 people how much they'd have to be paid to be white. And the average answer was $80 million. Um, it was exactly the same thing in reverse if you adjust for inflation. And people were engaging in a number of anti-white stereotypes, like they can't dance, they're poor lovers, they're bad with money, just like all the negative things you might say about whites from a minority white perspective. Can, white men can't jump? Yeah, that was actually, I mean, one of the black guys mentioned that. Like, I feel like I'd lose some of my athletic ability. It was a guy named Shimar. But I mean, so I took that, and obviously the survey became much more anonymous, it became longer, proper protocols. But I gave that to thousands of people, and that became the college dissertation. Like, what would you, what would it take for you to actually change your race, your sex, your sexual orientation, and your religious faith tradition? And the results are pretty interesting. Like, the group least likely to change race ever for a negative reason, which is a secondary question, was Asian American men over 50. So uh, older East Asian men were the most racist group. Uh, whites <laughs> and blacks were tied. You know, Hispanics were the least racist group. Muslims were the group most attached to their faith. But what you found was that these levels of bigotry were very consistent across people, one. And two, that people were much more attached to a lot of other things than they were to their race. Like, if you ask males, how much money would you have to be paid to change your sexual orientation? 
people would get extremely annoyed. Like people would write on the survey things like, I ain't about that. <laughs> like just <laughs> take it to that next level. So, I mean, people tend to value being heterosexual, being upper class in the sense of education and taste. I wouldn't want to lose, I'm not speaking to me, people would say I wouldn't want to lose my family background, my taste in music. Uh, people tend to value religion. I mean, a number of things much more highly than race. But all groups tend to be roughly equally racist. Whites and blacks were almost exactly equal. Uh, another interesting point there was that they only disliked each other. Um, American whites and blacks don't have a problem at all with, say, Latina women as a group. Um, they, they are used to fighting each other. So racism complex, but it exists for everyone. Yeah. Uh, okay, we were just before we started recording this, we were, you'd mentioned the 1619 Project and the 1776 Project, because you talked about history just earlier. Okay, so when the 1619 stuff came out, I started reading it, then I started reading the critiques of it, and I was like, okay. And then I started seeing the 1776 stuff come out. Um, yeah. And I mean, okay, I, there's only two things I read out of there. Uh, one was by Coleman Hughes, and I'm trying to remember what the, who the other person was uh, that came out of the 1776. But luckily now they, they, they're trying to roll back that 1619 project. Like, I don't know if you want to talk anything about that or if you want to... Yeah, so I mean, I'm along with along with um, kind of overall boss man Bob Woodson, the well-known anti-poverty activist, uh, Coleman Hughes, Quillette's editor, one of their editors, along with obviously Toby Young, uh, Claire Lehman. Um, but I mean, a good number of people, Glenn Lowry, the legendary economist, uh, John Simpson Butler, the legendary historian, Carol Swain, ran second for mayor of Nashville. I mean, a bunch of people from that kind of center-right black business or black social community and obviously white allies as well. We don't, don't discriminate. Robert Cherry, the historian, is a member of the group. But uh, the 1776 project began as a response to the New York Times 1619 project. And the 1619 project is like, it's an attempt, <coughs> it's an attempt to redefine most of American history through a woke lens. The argument is that everything that makes America unique comes from slavery or to a lesser extent genocide of the natives so this was an issue of the new york times magazine and one of the original essays was called how segregation caused your traffic jam they argue that racial discrimination is in part responsible for housing patterns which are in part responsible for the way streets are laid out etc i don't see how they explain this in the north which is two-thirds of the population but whatever that's not really the point um, you know, the lead essay from the project by Nicole Hannah-Jones argues that, for example, the Revolutionary War was fought largely to preserve slavery. She called it a or the primary factor. That's a direct quote. Uh, the preservation of slavery led to the war. She said that 12 million Africans were stolen from Africa with the implication that they all came to the USA. Uh, slavery built America's wealth. So that's the 1619 Project. What makes America unique is slavery. And I personally think that when you look at the things that actually make America unique, like landing on the moon or immigration from Italy, Thailand, and India, I mean, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So a bunch of people attempted to respond to 17, or 1619 were basically shot down as racists. And Bob Woodson started contacting these sort of leading black political and academic figures and saying, look, we need to, we need to do something here. This is silly. It makes black people kind of look stupid if you look at some of the essays. And it also creates a very problematic view of the country. So 1776 really has three primary theses. Um, one, a lot of woke social science, because so many of us are social scientists, is just wrong. 
it's not accurate, it's not debatable to say that the cause of the Revolutionary War was a desire to oppress black people more. Uh, if you just want some context for that, I mean, this is not my field, but slavery was legal in Britain in the overseas colonies until 1834. There's just no evidence for that at all. Uh, point two, I think, would be that slavery was a horrible historical sin, but obviously not the cause of American uniqueness. That minimizes every immigrant. It also just ignores the practical fact that every country in the world had slaves and only one became the USA, only one became Canada. I mean, slavery still exists in much of the world. And third, 1776 makes the point that the USA and the West in general is of course a flawed society, but still a fairly good one where it's not that hard to make it given hard work and personal responsibility. So we're designing a range of things, I mean, including a curriculum for kids. Like I said, there are a bunch of people involved that have a business background. So we've been kind of hearing pitches, you know, would you be interested in giving something to our school district? And the answer is generally, yeah. And I will say the 1619 Project shows a similar entrepreneurial spirit, somewhat surprising given their politics, but they already have a children's curriculum ready to go uh, through the Pulitzer Center. So if you Google 1619 woke grade school curriculum, it's the first hit. Um, and it's sort of it asks questions like what is a national historical memory and how can we change it so we're responding to that yeah okay i just that last thing because i've spoken to people i've spoken to teachers i've spoken to a couple of people who are school board members and stuff and i've been looking at some of this woke curriculum that's going around like three provinces in canada and as far as i can tell about 16 states okay are, are teaching critical race theory k through 12 that's crazy okay Seattle School District, K through 12, Seattle Public School District, they are teaching, uh, was it ethnically diverse math or something like critical yeah. race math with critical race theory? Like, okay, there was uh, I think it was pre-K in New York City. They were talking about teaching pre-K kids that that being on time is acting white and sticking to a schedule is acting white. That's crazy. And I'm like, and that's in the name of anti-racism. <laughs> like, yeah, it's also, I mean, one of the things there is that, again, you have to wonder about replicatory self-interest because that's going to make those kids unemployable in business. And, you know, where they're then going to go to elite woke colleges and get degrees in useless things and continue this whole cycle. But I mean, and there, there actually is a question of like, how big of a parasite class can a society sustain? <laughs> like, I mean, if... 10 or 15 percent of people are not involved in building computers or growing plants or even teaching kids which is what i do fairly well but are instead bureaucrats that provide the annual diversity audit for black businesses or something like that how many people like this can we afford to have around it's a real question how large can the mandarin class grow and other societies have had to deal with this, notably Mandarin China, but Byzantium, so on. So anyway, useless bureaucracy is a real pet peeve of mine. But I mean, there actually is a danger to some of this. Like I read the Seattle math curriculum, which is what you're talking about. And a lot of it sounds like something from the Titiyina McGrath Twitter account. Yeah. Like at one point they asked the question, who decides which answers are right? And I was just looking through this like, God? I mean, there are clear replicative patterns in society and in numbers. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, okay, my problem, my biggest problem with all this, okay, forget the useless students, which is, I mean, which is huge. Um, you know, I don't have kids. Like, my secondary thing is, in Canada, everything's socialized, right? These are the people that are going to be growing up 
and coming up with the policies that's going to be looking after my health care and my pension and all that shit. So I want them to be smart. But if you remember back to like the late 80s, like when the grant mid to late 80s, when, you know, like the Crips and the Bloods were really going and there was all that gang violence. Yeah. Then you had like the skinhead response in the South and all that, right? Yeah. Like all the anti-gang stuff was going at, was what they were focusing on was, okay, these, these people are going after kids that are loners, kids that feel mar- marginalized, kids that feel disenfranchised. You teach this to kids from K through 12, you got a generation of marginalized kids, disenfranchised kids, kids that are pissed off, kids that have like a beef. It's a smorgasbord for extremists to, you know, you know, take your pick, wherever you want to go. And like that worries me a lot. Well, that's something that we're already seeing. I mean, if you look at the number of Americans and Canadians that have joined overseas terrorist groups, it's pretty substantial and it doesn't exactly fit the stereotype. I mean, a lot of people will just say, oh, it's a bunch of Muslim males. But what? It's only like 66% Muslim males, and most of them were acclimated second-generation guys. Yeah. A lot of whites as well, a lot of blacks as well, people from Somali, of Somali descent. So when you ask, what would make a middle-class Canadian join ISIS? Like, how could you sink to that level of idiotic decision-making? What you often find is it's this kind of alienation. Um, you've been taught that your country is an evil place, or you've been taught that your country is great, but then received this infusion of the idea that it's an evil place. And generally, you're in a situation without a lot of normal supports as well. Um, I mean, there's that great book, Bowling Alone, that says that people spend less time in religious institutions, less time in sporting organizations. Many people spend most of their day alone with a computer. This is especially true for lower-ranking young males. I mean, so you've been taught not to believe in your own society. You have very few people around you. And yeah, these are the people that radicals will target. And it's easier in the internet era. Like one of the big contributors to the panic that's surrounding, for example, coronavirus, which is no joke at all, but as, as of today killed about 180 Americans. I mean, one of the big things is social media where people are posting just this straight nonsense, like country's going on lockdown in 10 hours. Friend told me. I mean, that can that contributes as well to radicalism, where you have isolated people that don't believe in their society that can be easily targeted by fanatic by fanatics in public forum. And I mean, like a lot of the message boards um, are kind of right on the verge of legal when it comes to everything from cartoon kitty porn to <laughs> this kind of terror recruitment, like eight coon. I mean, uh, I think they made the right decision shutting it down, but it popped back up again. Like, they have a mass shooter thread. So, I mean, like, I don't know whether it's still called Remove Kebab, but, and I don't spend a lot of time looking at this garbage, by the way. Um, But, I mean, like, the New Zealand shooter, for example, was inspired to do his shooting of a family-focused mosque. I mean, a despicable act by this. Like, he was talking online with other people that were like, yeah. No one's going to stop the kebab from ruining our society. No one cares about us. We're de-racialized white men. You know, we need individual heroes. And this guy thought of himself not as a lone killer, but as a hero. Like, he wrote Roland Martel's name on his AR-15. Like, that sort of lunacy is more possible in a wired-in society with fewer connections that doesn't teach a national narrative, I guess is where all this is going. Yeah, and I mean, that was kind of part of what, when I mentioned Douglas Murray's book, that's kind of what he mentions too. And it's, and, and I've, I don't know where, where we got to the point where the West is the worst. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, okay. I was born in India. I moved to Canada. Yes. Both those countries were colonized by Great Britain. You know, I could tell you all the shitty things Great Britain did to India and, and in Canada, but 
you know, a lot of great stuff came out of Great Britain as well. You know, like I'm a I'm a free speech. I'm about as absolute as you can get on the free speech as possible. You know, and I, as far as I'm concerned, Milton and Mill wrote the best books on free speech. Like the the British tradition of free speech is great. Like all the you yeah. know the science that came out of you know the British Enlightenment, all of that stuff. Like I mean, there, there's there's a lot to be proud of. And this idea, like I I heard again, this was. I want to say she was like the Swedish foreign minister or maybe she was like a deputy prime minister or something like that in Sweden. Oh, what does it matter if we lose Swedish culture? What is it? It's nothing. I mean, you're the you're the goddamn foreign minister, like deputy prime, like high up in the government, and you're saying that your culture means nothing. Yeah. I, I just don't understand that. Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think that there are a lot of questions there. Like, to what extent is culture fungible? Uh, to what extent does culture tie into race? I mean, quite a few. Uh, so in the United States, one of the aspects of our culture is that we are, I mean, it's the whole idea of the melting pot, yeah. right? We're an adaptive culture. So, I mean, if you ask someone the most American food, they would probably say pizza or tacos. No one would say, you know, drumstick of Virginia turkey. Or something like that. I mean, samosas would be in the top 15. So we have a very flexible culture in the U.S., and I think that's largely a good thing. Um, but I think that even in the U.S.A., a key element of successfully immigrating here is acclimating to our culture as it currently exists. You can introduce elements, but in general, you can't remove them within one generation, I think is a good way of putting it. So you can't say non-Sharia law, that's something that has to go in the U.S.A., um, I also think that there is, this is a debate that has to take place country by country. Like, is your national identity tied to the ethnicity of the historic population? Is it tied to a particular religion? Like, Sweden's a tiny-ass country that's been basically demographically Swedish since the Vikings. Yeah. I mean, are they willing to take in a population of other highly civilized people, if you're talking about Egyptians or something, mm -hmm. but then make them Swedes? Is that something they want to do? Um, and if not, you really have to think about what your immigration policy should be. Okay. Now I've heard, like I worked overseas and I traveled a lot. Like a couple of company, companies I worked for were European. So I worked in France and in the UK and then back in war zones. Um, now in the UK, I heard from family members saying things like, and these are second and third generation. Like one of them who told me, uh, he'd married my cousin and him and my cousin own a successful law firm. They have like about a hundred lawyers working for them. Plus all uh, the ancillary staff, right? Uh, all these white folk won't let us integrate. I'm like, you guys both drive a Lexus. You've got a giant house. You, you like, you employ a hundred lawyers. Like, how are you telling me you're not successful? And they're complaining about this, right? And they're like, oh, well, they'll never let us, you know, invite me to, uh, they'll never invite me to their weddings. And I, okay, I've been working with British military and ex-military and this, and I'm like, they're inviting me to their weddings. Like, that's why I'd, when I met my family, I was in the UK because I was going to a friend's wedding because yeah. she had invited me. And like, I'm like, she's British. We work together. She's invited me. And I said, the other, like, three other people are there and two of them are Hindu and one Sikh. It's like, maybe look at why you're not doing it. But in France, even from French people I'd worked with and stuff, it's not that they were saying that they're not French citizens, but they're like, oh, and it's it, maybe it's something to do with the language. But when you when you translate it, it's, well, you know, you can never be truly French unless you're from here. Like, you know, I, maybe in a hundred years that'll change. Who knows? Like you'll have laid down enough roots, 
but I can see that in a like I can see that in Northern Europe more than I can see it in Southern Europe where it has been like a mono population for centuries yeah. and you know it is something hard to change like uh, something stupid from here you know Muslims move into a neighborhood and they're like oh well we want the delis to stop selling pork products or putting them in their windows well no that's like me moving next to a ballpark and asking for you know complaining because I get you know, fly balls in my backyard like, <laughs> like screw you like, yeah. No, it's, it really is an interesting question. Like, I, I tend to think, so many or most countries today have an assimilative ideal of diversity, which is that anyone can come to the USA or Peru or Brazil and become a citizen. You just have to acclimate to the dominant culture. And I think that's more the case in the new world, where clearly every country was settled by a mix of whites you know, Levantines, yeah. Blacks, often East Asians that sort of came here and fought each other for the land. And I mean, the native people resisted quite well. They're still the majority of the population in most of Latin America. So you can't come to a country that's 10% white, 10% mestizo, 10% Asian, 40% Indian and say, you know, the one race will rule here. That's not how it works. In a lot of other countries, though, like West Africa or Northern Europe, where you've had basically one civilization for a thousand years, I mean, I do think that countries are going to have to make decisions, probably at the level of the law, about what it means to be a citizen. Um, I think in the case of, like, well-off Muslims in France, it's not that huge of a deal. Like, you'll probably be considered French, as you said, in a century. This is more of a question when you're right now talking about border opening, like Ghana's making this decision. The Northern European countries decided, and I don't, they went all, all out with immigration. I don't see why this is where they decided to take their first step. But when they decided to let in millions of African and Middle Eastern immigrants in response to recent crises, I mean, whether countries want to do that is really up in the air right now. Like in Sweden, immigration doesn't seem to have worked very well. No. And it seems like you have kind of a double problem in that you have a native population, which has a strong cultural tradition, a strong warrior tradition for that matter, which might soon come to the surface again. But that's in, existed for a thousand years. And then you have an immigrant pool, if you're looking at, say, Syrians or Egyptians, that have a cultural tradition that's lasted for a thousand years, that, and neither side really wants assimilation. So that's where immigration is going to cause problems. If you just take a hundred million people that openly say, hey, I'm still kind of your enemy, and you throw them in a country, that, that's not really going to produce peace. So I don't know. It, it's situational. Like Countries have to think of what their immigration policy should be. Yeah, Sweden okay. should probably let in a small trickle of people of all races that are very high performing every year. Get used yeah. to it first. No, that's just okay. But the whole immigration thing in in Europe, starting in 2015, pretty much, and basically it was with that. Uh, I mean, it was that that the, the picture of the Turkey, uh, the Syrian kid in Turkey, you know, with a beach, you know, face, you know, face on the beach, which they recently yeah. found out was he was killed by uh, smugglers, right? Like. I'm not surprised by that at all. Uh, it's always fake. Yeah. Like, uh, but anyways, because of that, like you said, all the tragedies and all that, you know, Sweden said we're going to be a humanitarian superpower. Uh, Merkel promised to take in like one percent of their population every year, which was roughly a million people or something like that. It was like eight hundred thousand immigrants. Um, I don't think they ever did, but there was there was small towns in Sweden that you know, population of fifteen hundred almost overnight to become ten thousand. Okay, that's not sustainable. Now, my family immigrated. I'm happy for 
immigration policies. I'm happy, you know, to allow people the chance to come to a better place. But when my parents came to Canada, they were given a, I don't want, I don't want to call it a course, but it was like a, a welcoming thing for newcomers, right? So it was at night. It was a couple hours, you know, maybe a few hours a week. Uh, and it was just, okay, here are the, the norms in Canada. Here are the, you know, not you can't jaywalk, whatever, but, you know, you're allowed, everyone's acceptable. You can't stop people from practicing their religion. You know, like all, all those kind of things, right? No money, they don't do that anymore. Uh, like they tried doing it in Finland where all the immigrants were coming in and all the refugees were coming in. So like it was a two-week course. They shut them down because some of the teachers ended up being raped by their students. So that's it. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a, uh, you know. That's not good. Yeah. So that wasn't not, I mean, again, that wasn't talked about, you know, when, so like when you're bringing in people and, and taking in refugees is laudable. And I, I, I cite a case in Canada for this because they let in all these refugees from Syria. There was a guy who'd come in and he was living in Vancouver and they, they found this uh, young Asian girl's body in a park. I think she was Chinese. She was 10 or 11 years old. She was dead and she'd been sexually assaulted this guy was arrested now okay i don't know much beyond this like i've tried to like i haven't heard even like like results of the 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 the, the trial or anything like that like no reports i could find but now there were one of two narratives oh my god he's an isis fighter why'd you let him in the other side's oh well you know he was just poor refugee we have to cut him some slack i'm like okay if we're and at that point i think canada wanted to let in like thirty thousand refugees i'm like okay what are you doing for the refugees? You're letting them in and you're just throwing them in an apartment and you're letting them go. I worked in war zones. I don't know. Like I was in Afghanistan for close to seven years. I don't know what this guy saw. He was living under ISIS. Who knows what he saw? Maybe he's walking down the road, sees this little girl, has a flashback, has PTSD or something, thinks it's his daughter or whatever. And he's trying to protect her, ends up killing her. Like, I, I don't think that's what happened, but I'm just saying like, yeah, I, if you want to have a refugee policy, have something that's in place to help them. Like, if you can only take in fifteen thousand, but you can provide them with psychological help, you can, you know, help them assimilate, do all that. I think it's better off to let in that fifteen thousand and take better care of them, to let in the thirty and just say, have at it. And I think that's the same for all these other countries. Like, if it meant setting up a staging area in American Samoa, you know, like I'm just, I'm just throwing out like something like that, where you can vet whatever you can get these people out of a hostile area and then slowly start moving them around do that but as soon as you bring up any kind of not saying okay we want to not get them out of there not help them but you want to slow it down just a little bit to be reasonable you're a racist you're a bigot how dare you like don't you want to save these people's lives it's like yeah but i want to do it i want to give them the most help possible like half-ass measures and things like refugee you know, like refugee asylum doesn't help, doesn't work. I also think that an honest answer to your last question to some extent is not really. And by that, I don't mean that you ever want anyone to die. It's that if you ask the ordinary citizen of any country, to what extent are you willing to sacrifice so that strangers from enemy nations can live better? I mean, the answer from a lot of people is going to be to no extent. That's not a thing that I care that much about doing. 
I'm a little nicer than that. But I mean, I actually think we um, settled on a workable immigration policy. You let in max 1% of your population annually. You pick most of them from the high end. You let in a few refugees to be kind. And then you require even those people to sort of brutally assimilate. I mean, do these hour-long courses every day for months. And that would work. That would be a successful immigration policy. I mean, I might cut that 1% to half of 1% because in America, that would still be more than a million people. And I think in the case of Sweden, that would have been very sustainable. I mean, that would have been, what, 90,000 people, mostly from the upper end of the refugee pool every year going through assimilative courses. That's not what they got. I mean, Sweden, there's a great article in one of the Swedish local papers where they were talking about how in the past two years, Sweden had taken in 600,000 refugees from Somalia and the Middle East. But the subtext of the article was that only 130 of them had found jobs. I'll see if I can find this, but that that's the definition of a bad immigration sure. policy. We admitted these masses of people. And again, a lot of questions like, what do you need in an immigrant pool? So I guess question one would be, because this is other than actual war refugees, which usually isn't what we're talking about now. Nations can decide on this. Question one is re-immigration is, do you want immigrants at all? There are countries like Japan that are just flatly like, nope, we're Japanese and we're mildly racist about it. You're not coming in, buddy. American, Indian, greatest countries in the world. Nope. Um, I actually once, um, I was talking to my students about immigration and they were all advocating for basically an open borders policy. And one of the assignments in this class, which is a college level honors class, was to see what other countries' immigration policies were. And the funniest one that I got when the students turned in the typewritten assignment was like the Hungarian ambassador had been contacted. We're in the Kentucky capital city and you know Cincinnati and Chicago have uh, individuals representing different countries. He was asked, what do you have to do to get into his country? And he said, quote, half a million dollars or be Hungarian and hung up the phone. And I mean, so first you can decide whether you want immigrants at all. Um, if you decide you do want immigrants, I think that again that so then you have questions about is there a demographic pool you want what do you do about the traditional majority in the country and third if you decide we're an open entry country like the usa and canada do that's when at the most liberal level you get into one percent fifty percent highly qualified everyone takes assimilation courses but only that's going to work if you just took five million turks i'm picking a highly civilized well-off country and dropped them off in daytona beach there'd be a lot of issues I mean, that, that's not something you can do. No. Okay, the, the, the Turk thing, and it just because of... When I, my uncle lived in Switzerland, and uh, I went to, went to visit him when I was a teenager in the 80s, and he told me the story. It stuck with me. So they were taking a lot of Turkish immigrants into uh, Germany at that point. And so there was Turkish and Moroccan, and I can't remember if it was Turkish or Moroccan, but the police got called to this apartment because right around the time of... Uh, there's there's the Eid after Ramadan, and two months after that, there's the other okay. there's the Eid where you slaughter the animal, okay, right? and that's to commemorate you know Abraham willing to sacrifice his son and all that, right? Yeah. So if you go to the Middle East, you go to South Asia, uh, most Muslim countries, the families will bring like goats to their house and have a pen for the goats, and they would slaughter the goats on that day. So these okay. guys brought a goat into their apartment, they slaughtered in the bathtub. The neighbors heard. They call the cops. The cops show up. There's blood all over the bathroom. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. You've, uh, got to, you've got to culturally assimilate, I mean, or at least muzzle the goat. Uh, just, you want to hear a random story along those same lines? Sure. 
When I was in law school, a buddy of mine I'll call Imtaz Hassan had a summer uh, internship in Washington, D.C. He was down the street from Capitol Hill. Um, and he is a Sikh by background. And he lived with three other guys, all of whom were also Sikhs. And they were young men. So that this apartment was a shithole. It was just like computer. There was nothing in there but computers on desks and pictures of Sikh holy men on the walls, <laughs> these long beards. And one of them was a shooter. So this is before DC tightened up gun rules. They also had some guns in there. So one of the neighbors came over to get some oil or something because these are all great guys. But she got some oil and then contacted the feds. And just said, I found an apartment, which is nothing but computers, pictures of Osama bin Laden on the walls, and apparently some weapons. What are you going to do? So apparently the federales <laughs> ran up in the apartment, <laughs> threw everyone up against the wall, started asking them questions. And it finally turned out, I mean, obviously this was a bunch of lawyers, but still, it's there is something to be said for adjusting a bit. Yeah, By the way, just, my computer is going to go dead in about a minute. Yeah, sorry, I was going to say uh, I've kept you on a bit. I don't want to keep you too long. If you want to let just let people know where they can get a hold of you, and uh, then like, thanks for you know, coming on. Thanks for talking. It was fun. Sure, love love talking to you as well, man. Uh, I'm Wilfred Riley, W I L L F R E D uh, R E I L L Y. Literally on Twitter, Facebook. That's that's who I am. You can find my email by searching that too. You can also find the books Taboo: Ten Facts You Just Can't Talk About, Hate Crime Hoax, and the Fifty Million Dollar Question on Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. So, all right. Well, thank you very much for uh, coming on, and thanks everyone for listening. I'll be back.